At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic, whole foods? Cultivate food security and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Jason Matthews of Valley of the Sun United Way to talk about his experience with Solutions to Hunger. Jason is currently the Director of Ending Hunger for the Valley of the Sun United Way and has been with the organization since September 2014. Before joining the United Way, Jason served as Executive Assistant to former Mayor Neil Giuliano as the Assistant Director and Chief Program Officer of Tempe Community Council and as the Chief Development Officer for United Food Bank. Jason earned a Bachelor's of Arts in English Literature and Political Science from the University of Arizona in 1999 and a Master's in Public Administration from Arizona State University in 2003. He is also a graduate of Tempe Leadership, a trained facilitator specializing in nonprofit board development and community development, and recently became a certified poverty coach. He is a fierce advocate for human services and public service and demonstrates this through his volunteer work on various municipal boards, commissions, and nonprofit boards in Phoenix and Tempe. In his free time, he enjoys going on adventures with his dear wife and partner, Emma, and their adorable dog, Daisy. Welcome to the show today, Jason. 
Well, it's my pleasure to be here. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for being here. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Certainly. Again, it is a pleasure to be on your show. I have uh, been listening to it and learning a lot. And well, uh, I feel that my intro and my path is it pales in comparison to uh, some of your other guests. So I'm just going to try to keep up as best as I can. Uh-huh. Uh, the, my, the path that's to really fill in the blank uh, that's not really captured in, in that uh, shameless bio that, <laughs> that you had, had the pleasure of, of hearing is it's really a little bit more of, of my uh, how I, I got here through my upbringing. Mm. There is, you know, I'm just a, a normal uh, Tucson kid that was um, uh, raised by a, a single mom who had me when she was uh, 17 years old and never met my father and didn't have any brothers or sisters. And it was, you know, together and through those experiences that formed the how I interact with community, uh, how I interact with social services and the nonprofit sector and schools and institutions of faith and how I interact with food. Mm. And it is through that work that I do now uh, I try to honor that history that got me to this particular point. I think about yeah, in everything I do, how can I uh, help um, you know and honor my my mother's memory, those folks that taught me how to how to uh, cook in giant big meals, <laughs> even though they're, we were all kind of thrown together, you know, and uh, um, and that's something that I continue to think about in every day that I work. Nice. So your job title is Director of Ending Hunger. Tell me about yes. that. Well, the uh, the Director of World Peace was taken, and uh, I thought that uh, it was, <laughs> in all seriousness, it's 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 a wonderful opportunity uh, here at the Valley of Sun United Way to have a laser sharp focus on the work around food insecurity, which is a fancy way of saying hunger for those in need within Maricopa County. And what I have the honor of doing is working with an amazing team of of professionals that look at the issue of hunger and food insecurity in the context of how we essentially break the cycle of poverty here in Maricopa County. And we know that, you know, if we don't take care of those basic human needs, and especially around food, that it's going to be really difficult to make a dent in homelessness, to increase financial stability in families and individuals, to ensure that little kids have the opportunity to, to learn as much as they can in school and, uh, and to be successful. And so we work to... Uh, make a dent within a very important issue that is very prevalent, unfortunately, in Arizona and in Maricopa County. You said a lot there, and I want to unpack it a little bit. Uh, You said food insecurity. Can you speak to that a little bit? Certainly. Food insecurity is essentially how hunger is defined by the U.S. Department of Agriculture or the USDA. 
And instead of starvation, which is, uh, I think everyone can understand when people have zero access to zero calories, food insecurity is essentially not knowing where your next meal is mm, going to come from. Right. So if you, if you woke up today and you knew that you were going to have breakfast, then more likely than not, you are food secure. Mm. And if you woke up today and you didn't know if you were going to have breakfast, then essentially you are operating in that sense of insecurity and that then generates other hardships that come with that. And, and heck, uh, you know, Greg, I would even pose to you and to anyone listening that, you know, um, just imagine, you know, what it would be if you woke up and you didn't know where your, your meal was going to come from, you yeah. know, how, you know, what would be the, the, the first couple of things that you would think about? I, I, I don't even know where to, go with that because it's so unimaginable for me to think that I wouldn't have food. When you ask that question, it's like, all right, my brain kind of went in 16 different directions. It's like, how do I go about answering that? I don't know how to do that. Yeah. And I think that a lot of folks, they're in the exact same same spot and actually go back to, you know, my upbringing and with my mom, Mm -hmm. uh, that led to a lot of anxious and Mm -hmm. hard moments and very difficult conversations. My mom and my story is, is just one of many stories that explains in which, you know, when you have, you know, a a person that wakes up a single mom with one child, you know, they're waking up with a lot of anxiety and already waking up with a lot of stress. And so how you, approach your meals if you do have one or even the 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 hecticness or the stress to get to that first meal um, it creates that very basic act of eating into a very stressful and anxious kind of moment mm-hmm. that um, if you're facing that it's really difficult for you to be your very best student or your very best employee yeah I ha- I knew someone once that she grew up with seven brothers it was seven brothers and her and you know they they while they had food they didn't have lots so it was always interesting for her it was you know there's no way she's going to share food you know the food that arrived on her plate was her plate food and and I kept assuring her you know what there's there's more where that came from but it's it it became ingrained in her you know there's this it it seemed almost like a protection um, mechanism so it was the, indeed. I, I guess that's probably as close as I've been to experience anything like that. Yeah, and it's what we have seen in children, especially, is that they learn at a very young age, especially in, if they're living in a household with food insecurity, and especially those that have chronic food insecurity, and that's defined by essentially needing to access emergency food systems like food banks or soup kitchens uh, three out of four times in one month or wow. seven out of 12 times in a year. Mm-hmm. They're keep, they always need those kinds of services that those kids, they, wow, they, 
they're pretty resilient. And yeah. you'll see that those kids start to develop hoarding, self-defense mechanisms, the need to gorge themselves when they do have food. And it's a completely different arrangement. Yeah. Um, heck, I, I see uh, my, my wife, Emma, who's a preschool teacher, and she teaches three- and four-year-olds. And she knows, you know, those kids that haven't eaten that well or haven't eaten at all on Monday morning because they're just gorging themselves yeah. on that first meal of the day. Yeah. And then they're, they're holding some snacks in their pocket for later. And that's what food insecurity does to, yeah. to individuals. You know, I can imagine the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So why is hunger such an important question to be asking and addressing, even in, you know, even in our industrial society? Great question. I get it a lot. And I'm so grateful that people are asking the question. I think a challenge with hunger is that there's a lot of assumptions that come with it. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get old enough to where I remember even as a kid, even though I was food insecure, uh, I remember seeing those commercials with Sally Struthers, you know, the, you know, for, for 20 cents or for one quarter a day, you could right. feed a child. And those programs are instrumental and they help to define what a lot of, of folks' opinions of what hunger looks like here in the United States, which is a primarily a starvation related environment. Mm -hmm. And again, starvation is not food insecurity. And why hunger is, is so incredibly important, uh, an issue for all of us to consider uh, in the United States and in Arizona, is that it impacts everything we do. It's, it's almost like asking the question of, you know, why is eating important to people? <laughs> and, right. You, know, you you get a really quick answer. Well, without that, and, and it gets a little more complicated. Yeah, there's not much of a future uh, there. And no, yeah, <laughs> the and so for our work here in in Maricopa County and in Arizona, we look at addressing hunger and food insecurity is instrumental to everything we do at the United Way, and how to help people be there absolute very best. And if we can take care of that basic thing, making sure that people have a healthy meal and not having to worry every single day or every single meal that this may be your last um, and you don't know when the next one's going to come from, then we can work on the harder things. We, yeah. can, uh, we can actually tackle the, uh, the harder aspects of financial stability or housing, or counseling, uh, making sure that you're being successful in your job, or mm. heck, uh, making sure that you're going to be successful in, in school. And I always challenge people that, you know, think about times in your life, those great times, those celebratory times, but even those hard times, funerals and hard talks, how many of those times in your life did not involve a meal? All right. Uh, I can't think of very many of them. Yeah. <laughs> and that is for me, you know, when you can take care of the meal and have, especially if it's made together and with love, that creates a space for those important talks. And for a lot of people that are struggling, especially people that are food insecure and that have that, have you know, the crushing daily life of poverty, 
you need to create that space to have the hard, big talks that you can use to heal, to rebuild, to gain mm-hmm. confidence, to then move forward. And I think we naturally do that anyways, but if there's a lack of food or the lack of good food, those conversations and that space, that just doesn't exist. Right. And it's very hard to tackle those wicked problems. Yeah. So how wide ranging is an issue like hunger in the typical large city and then in smaller cities? Great question. I'll give you some some big numbers and I like to apologize. I get really nerdy really quick. <laughs> uh, so please feel free to, to, to poke fun at me. But you're looking at in the the state of Arizona, uh, and I'll just kind of use some bigger numbers, that's about 1.1 million Arizonans out of a population of about 6.5 million uh, that are food insecure. In the United States, you're looking at about uh, one in four children, one in five adults, and one in seven seniors that are facing some kind of food insecurity uh, throughout the year. That's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> How that plays off into an urban versus rural areas is is a pretty complicated answer because mm-hmm. you know some urban areas have a lot more services and some rural areas they may not necessarily have as many services but they might be a closer knit community that actually share food a little bit they know their neighbors a little bit right uh, what we have the information for Maricopa County, which includes the Phoenix metropolitan area of about 4.5 million people or so, is that about 600,000 individuals within the county are food insecure. And that creates a big ripple effect. Yeah. It's incredible numbers, isn't it? Yeah. That's like one sixth of the population is food insecure in the state of Arizona. That's exactly right. Are you and finding those the, are big shocking numbers? Yeah. Are you finding the same numbers elsewhere in the country and in the world? Yes. Well, yeah. And well, and again, it's we. It's more if you and you asked the right question, which was the industrialized world. Mm-hmm. There is in the United States, we are we try to compare to other uh, industrialized countries. What's interesting about the United States in comparison to other industrialized countries is that we have a Western style diet and we have some uh, different uh, expectations uh, when it comes to food that some of our um, our friends and in other industrialized uh, countries, especially in Europe, uh-huh. um, don't have. So, for example, we in our country in the United States we like to have um, food to be pretty cheap and pretty fast and pretty tasty, which unfortunately includes a lot of uh, salt and sugar <laughs> in those particular right. meals. And that then creates a different issue um, that compounds not just being hungry, but also this sense of being malnourished. Uh, we have a big issue, food insecurity and malnourishment are completely linked and because of you know you see this all the time with you know fast food diets and those kinds of things it becomes an issue on when you can you expect to have strawberries to be you know one dollar for five pounds and you should get them six hundred and 
you know, 365 days a year, you know, that's a bad understanding and relationship with food. (laughs) And that's unfortunately the kind of uh, environment that we have to work in within the United States, which makes the the tackling of this issue that much harder. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you use the word malnourishment in uh, the last part of the conversation. How is food insecurity and malnourishment, how are they connected? Malnourishment and food insecurity are absolutely connected, uh, especially in the United States and in Arizona, because of, really because of poverty. And mm-hmm. poverty is a little different within the United States than in other countries. And if you look at just the technical definition of the amount of income that you have, uh, you know, we are actually pretty rich in comparison to other uh, countries. Mm-hmm. Yet, at the same time, how we, our relationship and how we characterize those that are living in poverty is much harsher than any other um, country. The The issue of of uh, shame and guilt mm-hmm. <laughs> are used a lot as a deterrent mm-hmm. to keep people from being poor. Uh, if you listen to political campaigns and if you listen to even the modern media, you know, being poor is not seen as a as a positive thing. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, you know, people are they're called lazy or they say that they choose to do that way and they're not motivated and all these different things. And that's just being thrown around as part of the, the, the nomenclature. Yeah. Unfortunately, poverty and obesity in the United States are linked. And it is because, you know, cheap food is, unfortunately, tends to be not good for you food. And if you are, uh, if you are in a, uh, a way in which you are, you know, working a minimum wage job, which can can be $7.50 in some, um, some cities, um, heck, if you're lucky enough to live in a city where even you're earning $10 an hour or even $12 an hour, Uh that's still... Uh, it's it still doesn't provide a lot of of income um, to pay for that good quality food. Plus, a lot of folks that are working those hourly wage jobs, they may not necessarily have the expertise or just the common knowledge on how to cook mm-hmm. that wonderfully right. nutritious food. Yeah, and so you have both this time deficit and you have a cost deficit that makes for a perfect environment for people to eat really, really poorly. And unfortunately, uh, <laughs> there's some contributing factors against us um, in the healthy food movement that make our work even more difficult. We don't have the advertising budget of a, of a big fast food company, for right. example. Yeah. Uh, it'd be great if we did. Uh, <laughs> you know, I would love to have the advertising budget of a uh, big fast food company to advertise fruits and vegetables. Right. Um, exactly. And, and, and since we don't, um, those kinds of marketing efforts just just compound folks um, all throughout, you know, this country and especially in poor communities that happen to live in food deserts where there's not a grocery store within a mile, a walkable mile. You know, there's but there's plenty of fast food places, and right. so with limited options, limited time, and limited expertise uh, and limited funds, they're definitely going to go towards the easiest alternative, which is 
fast food, which is unhealthy. Putting something in and our tummy. Unfortunately, right. what we've yeah, and what we've seen is chronic food insecurity. Those folks that are again, they're they're needing those emergency services and they're not eating very well time and time again throughout the month and throughout the year in chronic health problems, especially diabetes, hypertension, and osteoporosis are absolutely linked. Yeah. And that's simply because of a lack of quality nutrients. <sighs> wow. So this is a this is a, maybe a much bigger problem than we had imagined. It's a very big issue and I I frame it in a way of talking about how the United States and Arizona and this country, uh, we have a bad relationship with food. Mm-hmm. It's, we, we tend to, to really want everything to be cheap and easy and uh, to always taste like it's a birthday cake. And, you know, that's not really how normal people eat. <laughs> and it's, it's really a change of culture. And it's a change of environment and it's a change of knowledge. And it's, it's, it's a lot of those things that are compounded yet. There is a lot of great work that's doing. And, you know, to, to give you a shameless pug, the, the work and the things that you talk about on your podcast, that's part of that shift. And when you have more people that even become more aware of, and the, 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 the magic and illusion around growing food, which for a lot of people, it might as well be like looking at a unicorn. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. When you, take away, when you take away that mystery that's behind it and you realize that even, you know, someone can grow, you know, herbs and cilantro and basil in their own backyard. And so they don't have to buy that stuff that for $4, a little plastic container. Right. Then all of a sudden the it's almost like it's the wizard of oz and you just you know you look behind the curtain and you realize that oh it's not that bad and exactly it doesn't take that much that's time a great and, metaphor man and yeah and then and i also like to say the other great benefit is that it tastes better right. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and you know you're and and there's a lot of benefits but if you it's like if, if someone were to tell you you know the, the first time someone was to say like hey go ride this bicycle it, you looked at it and you said that that doesn't work. No right, exactly. Up on that thing. <laughs> but if you go off and try it, and then through a little trial and error, eventually you get it and you realize, gosh, I was meant to do this the entire way. Mm-hmm. To me, that's just growing and eating your own food, and uh, that is a one of the big, you know, ways that we can really address food insecurity within this country. Yeah. So let's talk about solutions, and I have a big, big, big question for you. How do we end hunger? The the sixty five thousand dollar question. Yeah, uh, I get this a lot, and just... for myself, it is it's very simple, mm-hmm. and also probably one of the hardest things that we can possibly do. And for myself, ending hunger is as easy as bringing community together, mm. and that's. It's a little counterintuitive. I know that some folks, I, I, I say things like that, and usually people are like, well, that's not about growing food and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, really when it comes down to it, there is, there's plenty of food out there mm-hmm. for folks. And if you think of food insecurity and hunger as just starvation, 
then yeah, then it's easy. You know, you just get all the food that's not being eaten and you give it to the food to people who don't have any food Mm -hmm. and then you can check the box and everything's done, but that doesn't end hunger. Um, that's, you're still, in fact, in some ways, by only doing that over time, over years and years, you can actually, you know, cause harm for folks. If you, you know, only give someone, you know, fast food and you're ending their hunger for the moment, Mm -hmm. you could make them sick over time. And so by bringing people together and, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to, uh, to change how much people earn or to, you know, increase minimum wages or to ensure that everyone has the ability to uh, get the best education or to get the best training and that everyone is happy and healthy and in employment and loves their work and all those different things. Those are really big, hard things. And yet I go back to the, you know, the solution that, my mom taught me back in the day in which, you know, we lived in duplexes with a lot of other families that were just as poor than we were. And, you know, we would come together once a week and have a big family meal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they weren't her real families by blood, but they were certainly our families by, you know, the community that we lived in. And it's in those communities that you can, share resources. You can, you know, pull, pull all your money into, you know, uh, to, to one meal and you can, you know, share it to where, you know, you have to cook, you know, everything you have to bring in one thing you can by working together in a community, you can also learn how to cook and you can build those skills in which you can learn how to, it sounds, you know, silly, but how to boil water the right way and right. how to, you know, make those, you know, those staple things like rice and beans and, you know, heck, even how to cook an egg and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. But then you can also share that meal with others. And through that, you can build that sense of emotional support that can give the praise for the student that had the excellent, you know, uh, test or the excellent, they did their homework the right way that builds right. confidence for them to want to go back to school. The same thing for someone who got that job promotion or heck, you can create that space for people to get that encouragement mm-hmm. to say, Hey, get out of that job and go pursue something else. But if everyone is eating in their cars, in solitude, sitting in front of a screen, not talking with each other, not caring about each, each other and all you're trying to do is consume as many calories as quickly and as cheaply as possible. That just creates not just malnourishment in that, in, in the technical sense, but a malnourishment of your soul and of community. Yeah. Meals were meant to be shared. <laughs> we break bread with other people. Yeah. We don't just break bread just for ourselves. <laughs> and, and we see that, that we see that every time. You know, I have a party. Where do people end up? They hang out in the kitchen. Yep. You know, coming yep. together around All the food. Time. Same here. Yeah. And that's where that's where it's fun. That's yeah. where life happens. Mm-hmm. And that is 
that is to where you can actually, and hunger is by creating those communities, those support systems that can not only address the immediate need of starvation, but also create the resiliency to where people have a better relationship with food and they can cook, they can grow, they can be a, a better consumer and not say, you know, I don't, my neighborhood does, does, you know, we deserve a grocery store with good produce that's seasonal and reasonably be priced. And, you know, if one person says that, well, they might be screaming into the, to the abyss. Mm-hmm. But if a whole community says that, then, you know, people start listening. Yeah. Yeah. So in your work at the United Way, uh, what short and long-term solutions are you working on? Well, we have a two-pronged strategy, mm-hmm. and one is a short-term, and one is a, and the other is a long-term. Which so my my answer was perfectly generated for your question, which yeah. I'm glad that that worked out that way. Uh, so our short-term strategy is to support and maintain the emergency food system. And I had mentioned this, uh, what that meant beforehand, but as a, uh, a little reminder, it is those food banks, those soup kitchens, congregate meals. It's really to help out with those, um, that intervention and help with people that may be uh, on that brink of starving and not getting connected to those available resources. Right. And that is absolutely critical. We need to have that safety net that's out there. And you'd be surprised even with that safety net uh, it is, there is no other more humbling and harder, hardest experience uh, for an individual to cross the threshold of a food bank and ask for help. And we need to create environments, great, efficient, welcoming environments. And we have some of the best in the world right here in Arizona mm-hmm. that really ensure that those individuals, if they have the courage to walk to that threshold, mm-hmm. they're going to make sure to get that immediate food. Yeah. And then in addition, our second strategy is the more long-term and that is to develop and implement strategies within communities that address the root causes of hunger. And that's our big systems change kind of work. Um, we know that we just can't build more food banks to end hunger. Uh, That's not going to change people's relationships with food. Um, We need to keep our existing ones strong and then use their expertise as a welcoming, a landing pad for folks. And then once that they've become secure, then pivot and use those folks to then engage and co-create solutions in which we can actually address those root causes of why people are needing emergency food, but then address the bigger issues around why people don't know how to grow food, prepare food, even connect with the resources in a more comprehensive way. Yeah. What kind of work are you doing in the ground? Like, and when I say in the ground, I'm not talking metaphorically, I'm talking about dirt. Yeah, indeed. Well, one of our strategies that came out of our develop and implement programs in in communities, that long-term strategic initiative, is in Maryvale, which is a suburb here in uh, the Phoenix metropolitan area. And to give an idea, the 
in other places, you know, this would be considered a big city. And in Phoenix, this is just considered a little village. Uh, Maryvale has a population of about 200,000 people. In oh my it, gosh. And it is uh, about 75% of it is Spanish speaking. And it has a long, rich, beautiful culture and history of folks that have been living there for um, a long time and having to, to deal with a lot of hardship and a lot of challenges. And when we wanted to address those root causes of why people are, are food insecure, and we had data about food deserts and food insecurity and poverty, and we had, you know, every bit of data that would make a, you know, a little heat map and a little G, GIS analysis just glow red with need, we decided to go in and engage with that community. And instead of going in there and, and telling them about everything that's wrong with their community, which mm-hmm. is not the best way to start a relationship yeah. with anyone, <laughs> right. um, we asked them about their aspirations. And we asked them about, you know, what, what kind of community that they want to live in and what are, you know, the barriers to that community and what kind of solutions can we co-create to get to that. And I tell you, one of the first ones was they wanted to learn about how to grow food. Nice. And so we, yeah, we took that information and we expanded on it and we had further focus groups. And what we ended up doing is we got demand from this community to essentially not only learn how to take existing community gardens in a lot of places and especially in not so well off areas in any urban area, you see a lot of um, (laughs) miscreated and misappropriated uh, community gardens. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is you'll have a lot of well-intentioned groups that are trying to do their very best and they come up with this really great idea, um, like say, let's build a community garden. And then they look on a map to see like, well, what, what place needs this? And they just, just parachute in on a Saturday and don't talk with anyone from the community. Right. And they build this garden and in four hours they have a great time. You know, they go have a great lunch uh, afterwards, uh, give each other's high fives and then they're done. And the challenge with that is that in some cases they can do some pretty good. But we see in, you know, Maryvale and other communities where it's almost like the, the community comes out and says, like, well, what just happened to us? Uh, who were those people? And what is this? <laughs> and they, they, were never, they never had any stake in the, in the ground. They never were asked what you wanted. And so if it, everything goes south and goes fallow and doesn't work, they don't really care. And so we learned from that. And we engaged with the community to say, well, what if you want to learn how to grow food, what does that actually look like? And so what we ended up doing is, you know, through these focus groups and saying like this is a need, not only did they want good spaces for a garden, but they wanted expanded places that were more urban farms, that were a little higher yield, a bigger kind of garden. They just didn't want to grow flowers. They actually wanted to grow some food. Mm -hmm. And they also wanted training on how to do that. You know, growing food in, in the desert, not as easy than growing food in other places. Mm-hmm. You can do a lot, but you have to just know what you're doing. And I kind of go back to that riding the bicycle kind of thing. You know, I mean, a lot of people look at, 
you know, growing food in the desert. And they're like, no one can ride that bicycle. <laughs> um, but you just have to find someone <laughs> that, and you know, well, someone who actually does know what they're doing. And eventually once you know what you're doing, it's like you've been doing it your entire life. And right. so riding the bike's um, not so hard. And then not so hard. Exactly. So we are actually in this next year, next calendar year, we have a goal of establishing uh, 15 urban farms within this community, training two people per farm, or about 30 people total. And uh, we are looking to work with each one of those sites to where half of that food that they that they grow will go into the emergency food system, uh, and that goes into that emergency basic need. Yeah. But it's now good quality, healthy food that people are growing themselves. I like to say that instead of just doing the canned food drive during Thanksgiving and Christmas, this is a way to do the food drive year round. Yeah. But now you're growing the food instead of donating the food. Yeah. And then to you know the the fourth thing that we're looking to do is how can we then turn the remaining part of that yield into a food hub, to where people can actually mm-hmm. then take that product, sell some of that and then generate a little revenue to then cover some of their costs and create a little bit of a business there. And from us, that not only addresses that emergency need, it also then addresses the root causes, and hopefully it's something that will sustain itself over time and build capacity within that community. Yeah. Beautiful. That's well thought out. I hope so. So how can our listeners make a difference in their own backyard? Let's, uh, let's go really micro and talk about that. That's a great question. And I'll just use the, the same thing, the, the, the same things that I preach and the stuff that I do at home and for myself and my, my wife, Emma, and my wife is, is also a preschool teacher mm-hmm. And we've even done a little garden in her, in her like little schoolyard too. And it's probably the size of maybe your dining room table. It's uh-huh. not that big. It's a, it's a really tiny little garden, but we try to definitely practice what we preach. The one thing that I think that we, we ask people to do anywhere, and especially when it comes to food, are um, you know, we kind of label it into, into three things. One, start to grow something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, don't. It's, it's, it's just, you know, try to get something, you know, into the dirt and just, you know, try it out and you would be surprised and, you know, how easy it is. You also be surprised on, you know, how birds love to eat tomatoes. I didn't learn that until the hard way in which I had these beautiful tomatoes that then yep. we fed to the birds, which they enjoyed. Um, <laughs> they will do said, that. Hey, you should put a net on that. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, net, check. Okay, there we go. And that, but that just takes away some of the mystery. And we did that with herbs and we love to cook Italian food. And so just basil and rosemary and just little things like that. And, you know, gosh, we haven't bought basil and rosemary in a really long time. And every time we go to the store and we look at the prices on basil and rosemary, we're like, oh gosh, we're so glad that we (laughs) planted those garden seeds a while ago. And so that's the one big thing. I think the second thing is cook real food. Mm. <laughs> and that cooking real food is, is just, there's 
just something magical about that. And if you have the opportunity to cook real food with others, that couldn't be your date night. That could yes. be your moment of zen. Mm-hmm. That could be your family time. You could do so much with cooking with food. And, and that is something that it is, you learn so much. You learn problem solving. You learn, you know, all, and it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be the top chef caliber. We're not talking about any of those cooking shows. Um, and that's, no, I mean, you could do even just the, the, the bare minimum little things, cooking eggs, you know, and, and, and making bread. I, I haven't bought a loaf of bread in a really long time. Oh, I think nice. going over a year. Wow. And I, every Sunday morning I bake loaves of bread and it is, it is, it is like going on a long walk in a forest for me. That is my moment of Zen for the week. And that is something that costs very little money, <laughs> ridiculously little amounts of money. And there is nothing for my opinion, nothing better taste than homemade baked bread. And it's not a big deal and it's not complicated and yeah. anyone can do it. Yeah. And that also builds confidence yeah. that I think is really key. And I'll believe the, the third thing is, is ultimately communicate with other people about the issue of, of hunger and food insecurity mm-hmm. and in, in, in making that tie between, you know, that food that you're growing and the cost of that food and the the time that it takes to make that food and then consider the folks that maybe have less time. And I even just invite people that if you just work your normal work day, your normal, um, you know, Monday or Tuesday, uh, whether you work or you don't, imagine doing your entire, you know, schedule, but you don't have a car and you only have public transportation. And how would that change your day? Uh, That is, how so many folks, especially folks that are food insecure, mm-hmm. that are not technically in the poverty zone, um, but they are still food insecure. And by considering that, and again, as you go back and you think about the time it takes to grow your food and the time it takes to make that meal, that's an important element of you know, why people mm-hmm. don't do that because of that time. Yeah. And being mindful in that, and then inviting other people that if you have a neighbor and, you know, especially in Arizona where we have a very large senior population. And again, one in seven, seven seniors are food insecure wow. in this, you know, in this, in this country, yeah. you, you can actually go off and, and, and make a meal with that senior because maybe they don't have the time to grow the food because of maybe arthritis or, you know, some other kind of, of, of issue, or maybe they don't have the time to, to go shopping, gosh, wouldn't it be nice to do that with someone else? Yeah. That is building that sense of community that not only is going to, you're going to feel better at it, Mm -hmm. but gosh, it's going to make a big difference in your own community. Big time. I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that fairy and what you might have learned from it. Indeed. I, have enjoyed a long history of trial and error. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I am, I am grateful that I've had that uh, luxury mm-hmm. and space 
yeah. uh, to, to do so. And, you know, I think that there has been, especially in working in human services and working in community, there is, there's a lot of times in which I have, I, you know, gone in with great intentions and having things completely and totally blow up in my face, <laughs> and, you know, and it's, and you learn a lot from that. And I think that, you know, and again, to, to keep the cookie metaphors going, uh, one of my favorite expressions from the office is, well, let's, let's see, you know, let's throw against the wall and see if it sticks, yeah. you know, and that's right. how my mom used to test if pasta was done. And in working with community, you know, there has been some times in which, and, you know, before coming to the United Way, in which, you know, as a young kid, fresh out of school and a lot of knowledge, you know, I thought I knew everything because <laughs> the data told me that right. that this is how all poor people should be, you know. I mean, it's, uh, it's almost like looking down at a chart and then looking up at you and saying, well, the data says that you believe in X, Y, and Z, and so I guess it's true. And so because of X, Y, and Z, now I'm supposed to do you know, A, B, and C to you, (laughs) do you mind, you know, and you, you quickly learn that that's just not how to treat people. And it is, it's not what, it's not earning respect. It's not um, demonstrating love Mm -hmm. with people. And I, you know, I then reverted him a big aha for me. And after a few failed attempts and in trying to do that and, organizing meetings that no one came to or, you know, <laughs> right. trying a project that, that failed, I then just reverted back to, you know, as a kid and, you know, lessons that, you know, my mom, you know, taught me and, you know, other adopted moms and adopted aunts and uncles and, and adopted brothers and sisters taught me is that, you know, you just, you have to, you know, treat people with love and you have to, mm. you know, share and be yourself and, it's you, you honor them, whoever they're from, and you take the time to get to know their history and ask questions and always assume the best. And by assuming the best and going in with really positive intentions, wow, you can, you can really get to know someone. And once you get to know someone, that's, that opens the door for, for the, for the good stuff. And that's certainly something that, that I have learned that you really have to, to create that space to to get to that big change through powerful relationships and i tell you it's slow it can be a little maddening for some that wants that who want that instant gratification yeah gosh you know if you don't put the time into it it's 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 gonna it won't be as much fun yeah look for the magic so what do you consider your biggest success I think my biggest success is, gosh, just being able to do the work I do every day and heck, even being an advocate and having the luxury of, of, of talking about the work that I do. It's, you know, the statistics. And again, it's, it's ironic that, you know, um, you know, I, I, through my education and my early training, in working with people in human services and in hunger work, you know, the statistics basically stated that I, I shouldn't be talking to you today. Um, the, you know, the statistics on, you know, a single, 
you know, a, a child from a single mother um, who, you know, died of alcoholism, um, I shouldn't be, you know, working in this kind of field. Um, I should be doing something else. Yeah. And, you know, for myself, it's having I, the opportunity and enjoying helping and developing other people to where they can be their very best. Yeah. And, you know, um, the things that I'm most proud of and I consider some of my greatest successes uh-huh. are when a community takes ownership of something they 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 feel passion behind a particular project mm-hmm. and they make it their own and then i can just kind of be that you know kind mm-hmm. of proud parent on the sidelines yeah. uh knowing that i i helped get them there but they actually did the work yeah. and we have been you know in maryvale with you know the you know the work we've done so far and to identify projects and to get to a point where we can actually launch some things. Gosh, that's just, <laughs> that's really some of the greatest success I've yeah. ever had. Yeah. Wow. So what drives you? I have the, the pleasure of being, uh, of the, the Jewish faith, mm-hmm. uh, something I practice and I live. And there is a, a saying in Judaism called, Olam, uh, which is to repair the world. And that is always pops into my mind uh, anytime anyone asks me what drives me. And that that statement of Olam or to repair the world is not assuming that the world is necessarily broken mm-hmm. um you know so in some cases you know it could be cracked but it's not full-blown broken it's, right it, it's more it's more of like how to create like what's your responsibility in maintaining maybe fixing this world for the next generation that comes after us yeah and it's it's a longer um view. It's certainly something that um, does impose that, you know, there's kind of a lack of ownership. It's not just like, well, how can I make my house really great? It's, you know, gosh, how can I make my house great to where when I'm dead, someone else is going to want this beautiful house. Right. <laughs> and, um, and even going so far as to say, it's not just about how to help one person. It's, you know, creating, you know, the infrastructure to where people can, you know, help themselves over generations and then yeah. has nothing really to do for you. Um, that is something that drives me every single day. Yeah. So any books that have been influential for you in this process in your life? Oh, so, so many books. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, so I was a, I was an English lit major oh my uh, gosh. as a, an undergrad and I still read so many different books and you know i think that the ones that really have motivated me has been works of i'll be honest works of fiction because mm-hmm. uh, i think that that's where you see great um uh, hope and inspiration yeah. um and and again I, i'm a little nerdy on this but i was uh, greatly attracted to the english romantics Oh, nice. And um, especially, um, yeah, especially Wordsworth and 
um, and some some of those great you know poets that really you know tied together the simple beauty of of the earth and um, and then it's this is going to seem kind of uh, uh, schizophrenic but I also am a big fan of a lot of those kind of uh, Victorian and kind of modern kind of um, uh, works of fiction especially from uh, Charles Dickens and uh, Bronte and Austin and all those nice. different things. It assumes that even with the, the greatest of, ten, of intentions that, you know, people can um, at the same time really, really fail, but also use that failure to, to be their absolute very best. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a big fan of, of, of those, those kinds of things. Nice. They, they kind of serve to, to really motivate my, my, my soul and to kind of ground me to, you know, yeah. humanity and to the world. And yeah, I mean, and I'm, I, I just realized after hearing everything I just said, I probably sound kind of like a snob. I'm also a big fan of like Game of Thrones. So, I mean, <laughs> I kind of go the full <laughs> <Nice>. range. <laughs> so nice. don't, don't, don't get me wrong. And I read a lot of, of, of journals and uh, um, especially a lot of things around social science. Yeah. And, it, and it really, I mean, if there's kind of a common thread um, and, you know, I read a lot of like Malcolm Gladwell and, um, his essays and oh, his yeah. books that are out there, yeah. but really, it's, it's 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 how can we really understand our community and the people that are in our community, and if you know you can you know works of fiction are great because it allows you to uh, get inside someone's head a little bit and to understand what it's like to be of a certain you know gender or race right. or yeah. live in a certain time or these things, and to me more of those examples is critical so you can ask the right questions <laughs> and you can connect with people that uh, you may not have the opportunity to connect with. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? The best bit of advice that I can try to leave everyone with is just get out there and connect with the people in your neighborhood and the people in your community. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, what I mean by those connections is, um, you know, you don't have to, you know, go on a full blown, you know, date with everyone and get married, but gosh, just introduce yourself (laughs) and, and, um, you know, create a bond with people and just get to know, you know, their, you know, their aspirations and, you know, some of their concerns. And that is just absolutely instrumental in how to address those root causes of, of hunger and of poverty. Mm-hmm. And, and even in, in, you know, the issues of malnutrition. And mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, you know, you don't have to be poor to, to be food insecure. Uh, right. You don't have to be poor to be malnourished. And a lot of people make those assumptions. And in some cases, that's true. And in a lot of cases, it's not. not and by building those ties and just asking that simple question of how are you and then waiting for an answer, <laughs> that goes a long way in building that trust between folks to where if you know, they are doing great, wonderful, celebrated as a community because those are big, fun things and gosh, make a meal together Mm -hmm. and enjoy life. 
And if they're not, you know, doing that well, gosh, you know what? Make them some bread, you know, bring over a big bowl of pasta, <laughs> you know, heck, even, you know, go over and say, you know, hey, have you, you know, um, it's, I noticed it's, it's a really good time to, um, to plant, you know, this vegetable or this fruit, you know, maybe let's, let's plant something together and, mm. you know, maybe, you know, I can, we can do this together and we can tend to it together and I can just visit with you once a week. And I'm, I'm, that's why I'm such a big fan of, of, you know, community gardens and urban farms because it not only does a lot of good, but it brings people together and it creates the space for growth through community. Yeah. And, you know, with that, gosh, you can do mm-hmm. you can do a lot of great oh, stuff. Yeah. Not just addressing the issue of hunger, but um, that's the kind of place that people want to live in and raise families and die in. And you know, that's that's where that magic is. Nice. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. It is my absolute pleasure. Thank Thanks. you. How can our listeners get a hold of you? I encourage anyone that's listening to go to the uh, website of the Valley of the Sun United Way. You can either Google Valley of the Sun United Way or you can go directly to our website, which is uh, vsuw.org. Mm-hmm. And you click on the Hunger tab and you can read about all the fun stuff we're doing uh, here. And there's also ways to get a hold of me directly. And gosh, I love to talk about this stuff. So don't don't hold back. You know, we 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 certainly love to to talk and to grow together. Perfect. Thank you, thank you. So you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash phx united way. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, Or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. 
In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.